0: Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that the following programme may contain the names of people who have died. Hello everybody, thank you very much for downloading this episode of the Cinema Catch-Up Club. For more information, you can visit the Cinema Catch-Up Club's official Facebook page. Just search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club. Or you can visit our website, thoughtjarproductions.com. This podcast is available on itunes and soundcloud and we would really appreciate your subscriptions there so pick your service of choice for more information about this and other podcasts we produce please visit thoughtjarproductions.com and now for this week's episode Hello everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Catch-Up Club, the podcast for films that you probably should have seen by now. I'm your host, Stephen Platt. Thank you very much for downloading this week's episode. And this week is our fifth and final episode of Australia Month, where we've been looking at Australian films, mostly. Uh, obviously, last week's uh, What We Do in the Shadows is uh, getting in on a bit of a technicality. Uh, but we uh, <laughs> yeah sorry, my, my guest there, Murray Jackson, just throwing him in straight there. Uh, how you doing, Murray? Yeah, going well. You, you were shaking I, I, your head like you'd sucked a lemon. Oh, it's no, no, it's
1: okay. I mean, it's the usual Australian cultural appropriation of everything Kiwi, but that's cool. Yeah, well, carry well, on.
0: I feel like we should we should point out that you have a, you have something of a of a Kiwi heritage, don't you, Murray? Well, it, it could well be that it's because I am actually
1: a Kiwi. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So, um, yeah. No. By all means culturally appropriate way.
0: Well, that's okay. That's why we got you in on this episode uh, as we review an actual genuine Australian film. Uh, and I think it's what's more Australian than having someone from New Zealand and England talk about the film. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I think it should be a time-honoured um, uh, thing that we
1: should do, time, time and
0: again, yeah. And joining us as our uh, genuine dinky-die Australian is uh, Dr. Carmen Doley. Hello.
2: You're just making me think of a line I did in an Australian play called <laughs> The One Day of the Year. Mm -hmm. where I got to go, nah, I'm a dinky die Aussie. It was a great line. (laughs) Excellent. Well,
0: you are in this case. uh, And uh, together, Murray and uh, Dr. Carmen are joining me to review the Australian film that you, the audience, said we should watch, that film being Rabbit Proof Fence. Now, for those of you who haven't seen Rabbit Proof Fence, uh, Murray being one of them. Hello. uh, Mm. Myself also being one of them. Uh, Carmen, what can we expect from Rabbit Proof Fence?
2: Um, so I've got to be honest, it's been a quite a while since I've seen the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw it, uh, as a teenager, my school took us to see it as part of, I think, reconciliation week. Mm -hmm. Um, so it is quite a, a film that makes you very angry at, uh, the white Australians of the past. Mm -hmm. Um, sort of a film that, that really makes you care about the three girls whose journey we follow and, um, very heartbreaking ending. Um, heartbreaking epilogue I will say
0: Mm. So where are the laughs? De- There's no laughs yeah. Unfortunately no uh, Unlike last year when the audience chose Priscilla uh, This year they've decided to go for a, um, a very affecting story Which is to do with uh, For those of you outside of Australia who may not be aware uh, There was a little thing called the Stolen Generation mm. uh, Where for quite a long period of time um, The the Australian government Which was obviously mostly Or at that point entirely uh, White people who were uh, have their heritage back to places like Britain uh, Decided that the Indigenous uh, children would be better being raised away from their families uh, hence the name stolen generation so it's something that's um it, in contemporary australia it's something that i think i think it's something contemporary australia struggles a lot with in terms mm-hmm. of how to what's the best way to approach it to reconcile with it to mm. deal with it and of course uh, as we are recording this um just a couple of days before the National Holiday Australia Day, which itself is a little bit of a dicey subject, mm-hmm. uh, partly because of when it's set. Um, I, I think it's a really good film to be watching in that sense because um, we, we've. I, I think it's I, I just think it's um, quite it's quite an important film it's one that even though I've not seen I've been very aware of um, the fact that it's very well received it's a Mm. very high rated film um, out out of Australian cinema it's I think it's an 87% rating on uh, Rotten Tomatoes if that's your sort of thing Um, yeah and I think it's whilst it may not be a laugh a minute um, I'm I'm quite curious to see how they've captured that
2: yeah I think it's good in that it kind of puts a human face on something that we only tend to read about and, and sort of experience through like a political debate. It just sort of gives you like a first-hand account of what some people actually experience when going through this. Mm. Um, so I think that's quite useful for, for people to see.
1: And as a, as a, a, a Kiwi, um, I find it fascinating that um, a film like this, you know, promoted, I guess, so much discussion at the time and um, around the stolen generation, and, and certainly there's been some efforts, I suppose, in the last few years to to recognise and reconcile that. Um, but I I wonder if you know the the voices get dimmer as time goes on, and and films like this are required because mm. this isn't the first film that's touched on the subject um, made here in Australia. There was a film made in the the seventies called the Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, mm. mm-hmm. um, which also touched on on the stolen generation, and yet you know, <laughs> there probably wasn't a great deal of conversation about um, that period of of history um, mm. thereafter, uh, until a film like this comes around.
2: Yeah. And I think the thing is as well that you're right in that, you know, some of these voices are, are disappearing from our society and it's a sad fact that Aboriginal Australians still have a lower life expectancy, significantly lower than than non-Aboriginal Australians. And I think the other thing as well is that many uh, Aboriginal people are pretty justifiably reluctant to share their stories with white people given that there is this long history of white people sort of betraying... Uh, Aboriginal people's trust in the past. Mm. There is a lot of um, uh, suspicion still present, which I think is is pretty understandable.
0: Mm. And this this particular story uh, is is based on true events. It's it's based mm. on some pretty incredible things which happened in the in the nineteen thirties. Um, and I think we should get into it. Yeah. Sounds good to me. And for those of you listening at home, pop in your DVDs and prepare to go for a long walk as we watch Rabbit Proof fence and welcome back everybody we have just finished watching Rabbit Proof Fence, and by we of course, me my guests Murray Jackson and Dr. Carmen Doley. Hello. Oh, hello.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so,
0: Murray, that was your first time watching Rabbit Proof Fence. Hmm. What did you think?
1: Well, it's um, certainly not a comedy, Stephen. No. Um,
0: no. It's, um, I don't think it ever purported to be. No, <laughs> no,
1: no, you're quite right. Yeah. Um, I was I was actually quite Unsurprised and at the same time taken aback by by what we just viewed. Mm. Mm. Um, Unsurprised in that I do have a fairly reasonable, I think, idea of of the white Australia policy. Mm -hmm. Um, But surprised in terms of um, the courage of our protagonists in that film, the, the three little girls, and their uh, yeah, amazing journey, mm-hmm. um, and you know, the, the,
0: the trauma that they went through, so yeah. Mm. I think just purely looking at it as a, as a film, as you know, something that, you know, despite the fact that it's based on a true story, this is still part of an entertainment medium, I think this is a very well-made film. Um, And specifically within that category of Australian films, um, I think it's an incredibly well-made Australian film, um, first and foremost.
1: Very much. There's a number of things that strike me in it. Um, First off, it's beautifully shot. Um, There's a lot of shots from a child's perspective, Mm. looking up. um, Which I I think, you know, you could say it's a cheat, but at the same time, it, it does kind of puts you in in their place and their perspective.
2: It makes you feel very vulnerable and very much very frightened, you know.
1: Fish eye well not fisheye lens, but the 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 view of um, uh, what's his name? Um, Kenneth Branagh at the settlement looking down at the child, the 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 lens that they use there where, Mm. you know, he's this, you know bigger than um, well, yeah you know, godlike figure type yeah. of thing, looking down at them that's the small child, and that's it creates that sense of um, uh, perspective, I suppose. Mm. Um, there were a number of cheats used in the film, I think um, yeah let's get those out of the way. I think Noyce, um ramped up the the holocaust. Um, comparisons, I suppose, because I
0: I would call this Australia's holocaust. Mm. Um, Yeah, yeah. I mean, to to some people listening overseas, they might be going, what, really? Um, Well, yeah, a lot of people do feel that way. And I think it's an interesting point um, for you to make, Murray, seeing as you were, in the last couple of weeks, you were in Europe and you visited uh, Auschwitz, wasn't it?
1: I did, yeah. Mm. And look, certainly, look, don't get me wrong, the conditions in Auschwitz were, were... probably a hundred, no, a thousand times worse than what we, we viewed um, with the Moore River Settlement where these these, these children were taken. Um, but there were also disturbing parallels in terms of um, the loss of identity, the loss of culture, the loss of freedom, um, the, the fact that you're people using... people against each other. Turning yep. people against one another. Mm. Um, and this dogmatic idea that, you know, might is right and our way is right. Yeah. Um, now, there are those yeah. parallels. So I, I don't want to oversell it, but we also have to understand that because of this policy, there were lost generations mm. of this race. Yeah. Mm. And there was an endemic. Um, push to breed them out now that has parallels with what happened in europe yeah and
0: i think the the filmmakers choosing to make that that allegory uh to make that comparison to to something which uh even though this is obviously earlier than the second world war it's that that sort of um that sort of thinking that sort of uh concept of of racial superiority and, and breeding it out and things like that, I think that was uh, obviously a very deliberate uh, decision, I think, to make to make those correlations. Um, but yeah. I certainly don't feel they did it too heavy-handedly. I think, no, it, I... yeah, you could have very easily made this much more obvious and dogmatic, and I think it would have probably taken away from the truth of the matter. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and I, mean, and I, I...
1: I could be overselling it. I, I do have this... Mm. I suppose, these thoughts of my time at Auschwitz... Mm. Fairly fresh in my mind, so yeah. so I'm probably looking for comparisons. But
2: I, you're not the only one who's made that comparison. Like I, I didn't mention this before, but I studied the text at university, and you know it was like a um, book to film unit basically. So you would read the book and watch the film and just sort of critique how the adaptation took place. And I remember a few places, a few papers actually saying the same thing that you're saying that they uh, noticed like some similarities um, to Auschwitz that were weren't actually in the book so for example the the girls being brought on a on a back of a truck basically yep. which is not how they would have gotten to More River or well, in a cage um, yeah, yeah in a cage yeah exactly and they're saying that maybe that was not necessarily intentional but certainly a way to um make this film more approachable for international audiences who might not have the same context of the stolen generation that australian mm. audiences have yeah. and sort of relate it to something that they might be more familiar with in mm. in the holocaust even though as you say you know it's not a direct comparison but they're saying you know that the loss of identity the loss of generations you know it's it's kind of a similar thing
3: mm.
1: yeah so you can see that there, there's that dramatic license in there but at the same time this is a film and films are there to also entertain as well as inform. Mm. Um, so I, I certainly... yeah. I, I, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to pick holes in this. Mm. I think it served its purpose and mm. it was done deliberately and it was done for a reason to yeah. give you context.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I think, like by and large, this is a very good film. And I'm curious, Carmen, as you've, mm. as you've read the, the original book that yeah. this is based on, which was written by the daughter of, of Molly, yeah. uh, the protagonist um in in real life what um is it a good adaptation? I suppose because I've not read the book
2: I mean to be honest I was kind of I remember I was doing a play at the time and I was reading a lot of the book backstage in between scenes Mm. I am glad I read the book Mm. but the phrase hot sweet tea came up every five pages or so Mm. it was it was It was a very compelling story, and I'm glad that she documented it, but Mm. um, it did seem quite repetitive at times. Maybe they had Um, a lot of hot sweet tea. They they did have a lot of hot sweet tea with people, Stephen. (laughs)
0: There was a a lot of offers of tea. And we saw none of that in the film. No, there
2: were were at least two offers of tea in the film.
0: (laughs) You could hear, Um, (laughs) you know, when the police are there and they've got to that farm, you hear a lady in the background going,
2: draw a cup of tea just like
0: that so yeah I presume they just edited around all the hot sweet
2: tea yeah yeah a lot of the hot sweet tea didn't make it to the film Mm. but I think it's it's a very compelling adaptation I Mm. think um, you know all the the motifs of the of the bird and the the bird being the protector of Molly and her her sister. Mm. Um, I don't remember that being a huge thing in the book, and I think that's more of a, a visual element that the films kind of adopted. Mm. Um, but saying that, I think it's it's a very nice film. Um, yeah, they have from memory. I think they've taken a few dramatic li- liberties with the original mm. narrative, but um, it, it's a really nice adaptation.
0: Mm. And I think it's it, it's a very it, it's a really good length of film in that it's it's basically bang on an hour and a half. And considering that you could almost sum up the story as children escape uh, prison or mm. an equivalent walk uh, one and a half thousand kilometers to get home. That that's the plot essentially. Yeah. Um, but I felt they. I think it's just the right length. I think yeah. it's it's very well told. I think the way that they created the conflict between these girls and uh, A.O. Neville, played mm. by Kenneth Branagh, I think even though they're obviously only in one scene together near the start, I think the way that they created that conflict by having Neville in charge of the operation to try and catch them, and we see that being planned with the other authorities, and then we see how Molly is outsmarting the trackers. Mm. Um, I thought it was a really compelling conflict um, yeah. within the film and um,
3: mm. yeah
1: that, that, that can I bring that up for a second the, please do the, the, the role of the tracker yes mm. the Goldpool um, yes played by David Goldpool yeah David Goldpool who's in everything people if you ever watch an Australian film watch for <laughs> David Goldpool he's He'll, in everything yeah um, going back to 1971 mm. um, so Goldpool's character there that was really interesting to me i don't know how this plays out in terms of the real story and what the 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 actual role of the tracker was but he is obviously he's um he's subjective to the the authority of uh you know kenneth branner and the the local authorities there charged with the role of going out and finding these girls and clearly he is putting in the effort there particularly at the start but is there the hint there that he in the end is like more than happy to let them go because of the fact that in this film one of his own children is at the Moor River Settlement mm-hmm. and he is separated from them. So in other words, is the tracker in this um, a clever dramatic uh, device or was there any real... Um, yeah. um, truth to the, the, this part of the story, I don't mm. know.
2: I, I honestly don't remember it being in the book. It could be, and I just don't remember it. But I think either way, it's an amazing performance. And I think mm. he only has one actual line of dialogue in the film. Mm. All of it is, is pretty much nonverbal, and yet you see a lot of conflict you know, he, he does that really well just to, to kind of give you this impression that he's thinking about his daughter. He's thinking about these girls wanting to go home. He's got this conflict between, you know, his culture and the white culture. And I think it's it's a really nice way that he, he is able to portray that without actually saying anything. Mm-hmm. Well, it's um, almost
1: a performance of dance at, at yeah. times, isn't it, with mm-hmm. the way that he moves? Um, and very reminiscent of, of a lot of um, in, Indigenous... Um, Tribal dancers as well with mm-hmm. the, the movement. Mm. So, um, yeah, it was yeah, it was really interesting. And he's got such an expressive face too. Yeah, yeah he
2: really does. So
1: yeah. I, I reckon they just... It was a cheat.
0: They, they <laughs> used that because they knew he'd be good. Well, I mean, you know, historically... Um in indigenous trackers were used by by um, by the white colonisers because they knew how the land worked. They could track. They had this you know experience for thousands of years of being able to see and track things in the sand. So I think even if it is a dramatic liberty, they would have used. They would have maybe used different trackers. They maybe wouldn't have just used the same guy the whole way through. Hmm. But I think um, I think you're right. Gulpil's, um his his physical. Performance um, without obviously needing to say much, you know exactly what he's thinking. Mm. And I think it's really interesting seeing him contrasted with uh, Riggs, who's the the white uh, tracker that's with him, mm. the white cop, who um, obviously is all mostly verbal in all the stuff that he does. And he's there going, ah, oh. like trying to find a needle in a haystack. And <laughs> you get the impression that. Uh, the poor tracker, uh, Moodoo has had to like put up with three weeks of, of yeah. just complaining, but I, I did like he had that little smile to himself at the end where he's like, yeah. You've done it, you've yeah. done it well. Like, and, and and like, even though obviously it's it doesn't help him and it doesn't help the fact that you know he has his daughters in, in the same situation the other girls were in, and his failure to find two of the girls means that that's Mr. Neville's probably not going to look favourably upon mm. him. I, I think. I think, he, I think he is just happy that they were able to do it. Because, I mean, the fact they were able to do this is, is nothing short, really, of the miracle. Mm. Like, the fact they were able... You know, these were young girls that went out into the land, walked for nine weeks, managed to survive... And you know, two of them managing to actually make it back and then disappear and go and, and live their lives. And as and, we and then
2: Molly do the do it again as yeah. an adult, with well, her, exactly with the with, with her, her, her infant, Oh, you know. I
0: found that heartbreaking. That, yeah, that was just the epilogue. Yeah. I was again. <sighs> okay with the story up to that. Yeah, yeah, th- uh, yeah. You get to the epilogue at the end, and you you have this voiceover um, saying, uh, "You know, I I went, I had two kids, and we got taken back to Moor River and had to do it all over again." And you're like, "Oh my." god yeah you just you're just Mm. there going like so this Mm. big traumatic experience that molly's just gone through as a 14 year old and then you find out that within 10 years she had to do it again and And then then,
2: lost her both her daughters yeah
0: and never found one again you know and and that is you know that's that's the stolen generations that's that's what happened it's these things that happened all the time that's why it's a big deal Mm. in australian society and i think it's really important that you get stories like this and that they're as well made as this film is mm. because um, it, it, it's a completely different type of film but a couple of weeks ago we did Brand New Day which yep. was very much more a celebration I get kind of like a comedy and like a celebration of being Indigenous once because uh, it was set in the 60s you still had um, almost like a watered down version of more River where these uh, indigenous boys were sent to school in Perth and there was the co- comedy Germanic Jeffrey uh, Rush priest character who was more like a pantomime villain than than Kenneth Branner's performance and whilst that's you know it's good to have a fun film it's a celebration um of 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 the culture I, I think this film is I, I think it's important you have these films as well yeah. you, that you have these films which are very much trying to express the fact that it was that it was awful like that scene where the girls get taken away from their 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 their, yeah, their paternal figures and 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 it's it's just it's it's awful and you see them you know they're chasing after the car and they can't keep up and the mums are on the ground crying and then the older ones like just smacking a rock against her yeah. head mm. and it's just that
1: really affected me
0: yeah, yeah it was so visceral I, yeah. that, that that
1: is for me the ultimate sense of frustration yeah now um, imagine I mean,
2: watching that bit with a group of sixteen-year-old schoolgirls. Mm. <laughs> like the the reaction was just—I still remember yeah. the the girls reacting to that to that bit. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, and I, yeah. I think the thing too with Brannar's character is, um, I don't feel—and you stop me if if I'm wrong here. Give me your own thoughts on this, okay. but I don't see him portrayed as a villain so much in this. As a man absolutely convicted by the right and the um yeah, the, the rightness of what he is doing. Yeah, yeah. I, he, I think- he, he he has no can can you know, no conflicts here. This is the right yeah. thing. He's doing the right thing by the man and it's summed up in that uh, letter he dictates at the end where he says if only they understood mm. that we're yeah. doing this for their own good. Yeah, And
2: I feel like if there is a villain in this film it's ignorance yeah, rather than any particular character and I thought this is kind of related but I, I genuinely thought there was a moment in this film where he said something about oh you know Aboriginal mothers they don't they get over grief quicker they don't feel grief in the same way that white women do and I could have sworn that was part of this film but obviously I've, I've read that. Was it potentially in the book? Maybe I don't know, mm. but I, I could have read it in a textbook or something at school yeah. and then extrapolated on onto this film. But...
0: I mean, we saw the the misinformation with which um, Neville was was armed with, and was you know when he's doing that meeting with mm. the with the mm. society ladies in Perth, and he's explaining the basically the program is to breed out the the indigenous um, part of the half caste generation, yeah. um, and. As horrifying as it is, that's that was the truth of the, of the of the time. That was what they believed. That was the right thing to do. And I think having having an actor of Brenner's, um ability mm. and because I think he's brilliant in this film. Um, yeah, and I think is, for yeah. for the reasons that you said, Murray, that you know he is the villain in the film, but at no point do you get the sense that he believes anything he's doing is wrong. And mm-hmm. I think that is that that makes it so compelling because I think also, at the time, I don't think a lot of people were thinking what they were doing was wrong because they were well, they didn't, yeah,
1: no. and that's and, that's and, the scary and it carried thing carried on. I mean, as the epilogue said, this carried on until 1970, mm-hmm. and you know, I I was mentioning to to you guys before I did my first trip to Broome with um with my wife in in 2010. Uh, I'd never been that far north, and As you want to do You you, you go to the local museum And just have a look around I was shocked To discover that The Aboriginal people Were pretty much regarded As fauna and flora Until 1967 I was Mm. born that year Yeah So this is within my lifetime That this policy changed In fact I was three years old According to this film Before they changed The White Australia policy I mean that is a shocking indictment.
2: Yeah, and I don't think a lot of Australians really necessarily realise just how bad the policies were and and how that continues to affect Aboriginal people to this day. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to say how old I was when I graduated from medical school, but, you know, I had to do a whole bunch of online modules for the State Department of Health, and one of them was looking at, like, the context for... Um, Aboriginal people in in Western Australia and it was literally, you know, the the protector of Aborigines, you know, Mr Neville. He controlled, you know, he had a say over who you married. You had Mm. to seek permission for him before you could marry anyone. He controlled where you lived. He had guardianship over all Aboriginal people in the state. You didn't have guardianship over your own children. You didn't have control over your own salary or how you spent it. You couldn't vote. I mean, it was just... It it takes your breath away. And the fact that I did not know this until I started working as a doctor, I mean, it, it's... And this for it, me... It's mind-boggling. This,
1: this is, to me, I guess, a, a little bit of an indictment on Australia because you know, I've just been to Germany where in terms of the amount of information available on what happened during Nazi Germany and so on, I, I think this is taught... At, at quite a young age, in their schools, and you know the horrors of what happened and how this must never happen again. Blah 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 blah. Yeah. I don't get the sense that something similar is taught in Australia as to the history of this country, the history of the indigenous people, and the the shocking, um, you know, race um, or racist. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here, Stephen? Steven? Agenda. The yeah. shocking racist agenda yeah. that was in place. And, and and I have to say, it remains in place yeah. to this yeah. day. I and, mean, and-
2: I, I studied some of that in school and it was sort of like a, a, a history module on like the way that white people have seen Aboriginal people throughout like Australia's history. Um, but that being said, that's not... It more focused on the past and then it kind of had this attitude of oh and the law changed in 1967 and things aren't still great everything is great yeah Yeah. everything is great let's let's move Mm, on like it's not like continuing to acknowledge the fact that say yes my school did this module but we also had camps up at new Norcia, where there was a school for aboriginal orphans who were not orphans and they took us to music camps at Rotnest, where, you know, one of the prisons where Aboriginal people were imprisoned and hung is now a hotel, you know it's, mm. uh, people are quite sorry, I'm getting quite right up right up. Mm. but people are quite happy to acknowledge the mistakes of their ancestors mm. in dealing with Aboriginal people, but they don't want to acknowledge the fact that it's still going on yeah. and their own role in that uh, continuing oppression you yeah, know? and, and, and I, um,
1: the whole thing needs to be, you know, let's get Past that, I don't want to make this a whole thing about you know indigenous history and indigenous um or attitudes to indigenous people. But yeah, you know, get past that. Get past that embarrassment. Get mm. past yeah. that. Yeah. Address it, and and find a way forward. Yeah,
0: it's and and that is why I, I at least personally think that having films like this is really important because it gets. It gets that message to people that might not otherwise have gotten it because there are i I moved to this country when I was fourteen. the stuff I learned about um indigenous culture when i because i it was about year ten when I moved mm. um so sort of middle to second half of, of your high school experience we were taught about um the indigenous culture specifically stuff that was uh local to sort of perth and western australia yeah. but i was never taught anything specifically to do with the stolen generation until i did a very specific i did a like political and legal studies course yeah. when i was in year 12 and learned about things like terra nullius learned about uh, the fact that they weren't technically classified as human beings by law until um you know England England won the World Cup before that happened concepts, you know, All these concepts which you know, yeah, our
1: own politicians of this day and age, Tony Abbott would have us embrace yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: I don't know if he just in case Mr. Abbott's listening, I don't know if he's very specifically saying that, uh, just legally speaking, however um I, I would probably agree with you now uh, the to to go back to the film though uh, just in terms of I think part of the reason that it has been so um effective and part of the reasons why it is considered an australian classic is not just the performance of kenneth branner who was mm. fantastic throughout playing mm. this very complex character but everyone's performance um the kids the the the, the three girls are brilliant and yeah. i think a big part of the reason why they are so good is because of the way that um the production team essentially just let them be children Mm. And I think it's one of the most sort of in the 90 odd episodes of this that we've done in terms of films of children, we've seen some really good performances. But I think for this specific story, I think just letting those uh, three young actors essentially just be themselves in terms of being children yeah. and giving them an understanding of, OK, in this scene, you're very tired. And then just sort of letting them run with what tired is. It It just felt superb and it felt like it really complemented the other fantastic acting work that was happening in this film
2: mm. yeah absolutely I don't think there was a single weak link in terms of no. acting in this film at all all
0: the all the um, um, characters you meet for like two minutes like the the people out in the country that they meet so like the the two indigenous blokes with the lamb mm. uh, I, I you know that one guy going oh, you going here and he gives them the matches and the lamb yeah. and like I thought he was great I thought the guy that um, that told uh, Gracie that her mum was in Helena, uh, mm. um, and you know was betraying them. I thought he did a really good job. Mm. Um, yeah, everyone plays their parts really well. I I absolutely. I think my favourite bit of acting in this though was um, was Riggs, the the officer when he who took the kids when he was confronted by Molly's mum uh, mm. towards the end, and she's just holding a spear at him <laughs> and looks as though she is going to murder him if he comes any closer and he just collapses yeah. into himself as a human being and it's just so good. It's it, so well performed yeah. from all three of the actors in that scene. Yeah. Um yeah.
1: Well, I think I think the, the, the key to this was that they kept I think a lot of the dialogue scenes fairly conversational. Um there wasn't
3: acting. Mm.
1: Um it was it was pretty natural dialogue. Yeah. And I I think that would have helped particularly non actors, um, non-actors, um to, to deliver that performance. Mm. But um yeah, yeah, you know, short of you know, asking these three kids to, to walk eighteen hundred kilometers, um man, they 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 embodied those
0: roles perfectly, didn't they? Mm. They really did. Yeah. I, I it was just absolutely fantastic. And uh it's 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 again it's one of those things where Normally, with a film, you you went when reviewing. It's normally a case of saying, "Did you enjoy it?" I don't know if again is "enjoy" the right word for "Rabbit Proof Fence." I I think it's yeah. it's a film that I that I like in, and I I suppose I enjoyed in terms of purely from a filmic sense. I think it's incredibly well shot. I think the fact that normally with the Australian outback it tends to be very colourful, mm. uh, this felt quite desaturated. It felt like a slog. Um, I think they made the wildlife reflect that it was unforgiving that it was a difficult place for these for these girls to be walking through um, i I think from a filmic perspective, I enjoyed it, but i don 't know if it 's a film that you can say that mm. you i'm enjoy. Not, not wanting to no. trivialize
1: it um, yeah. in in any way whatsoever but if if I was to say um, i for me it was reminiscent of of your better Steven Spielberg drama films. Mm. So, for you know, did I enjoy Empire of the Sun? Did I enjoy Schindler's List? Um, did I have a, a wow time watching Bridge of Spies? Mm. Um, no, but I would. Well, yes, I enjoyed those films, but I, I wasn't sort of sitting there cheerleading yeah. at the end. They, yeah. they you left were you engaged. a bit. I think yeah, engaged, engaged, is the word. engaged yeah, emotional. In some cases, cold, particularly shindlers. Mm.
0: Um,
1: so, yeah, the, 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 there are those types of drama, or particularly real-life drama films, where you don't go, well, yeah, I had a real great time. Mm. That's not their purpose. Mm. They're there to tell a story and to present a point of view.
2: Mm. And to increase people's understanding of the Of that of the part subject. of history, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um.
0: Would you guys like some trivia about Rabbit Proof you oh, She's going to sure. trivialise this film now. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah, Steven. thank you. <laughs> I, I mean, a, a lot of it is is to do with how they actually got those those girls performing. Uh, but mm. to begin with, um, Evelyn Sampi, who played Molly Craig, actually ran away twice during filming. Um, in one instance, she was found in a phone booth trying to buy tickets back to Broome. She was, oh, was oh, that right. She was homesick. I, yeah. Oh, poor yeah. Thing. And um, yeah, I think obviously you know they were young and uh, you know it was a big ask for them. And obviously, mm. I, despite the fact that they were very well looked after. Um, and you had a lot of people working on this film who had personal connections to the Stolen Generations as well. Um, I think, yeah, it it must have been quite a difficult shoot. Not see, just now yeah, I'd absolutely. be fascinated
1: to, to see her interviewed today, mm. recollecting her experience on that film and mm. why she chose to do that. That would
0: be yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, the last scene in the movie, which we we touched on briefly, but it's the real life Molly um, and and Daisy walking um, out out in the the bush, um, which that was brilliant. I, I just have to say, was I, that filmed at the same time? It was filmed. Uh yes, it was filmed at the right at the beginning of the production. Um the the reason for that um according to the director Philip Noyce, uh he said that uh, Molly's age and health made it so that it was best that they shot it first. They didn't yeah. want to for her to suddenly not be here to to film. Um and so I thought I I just thought that was so fantastic in in terms of like seeing that connection you've spent all this time with with these characters and seeing what they went through, and then mm. seeing the real life person right there—the person that lived through it—and the fact that you know, she she got to live to to an old age, and that that you're seeing her on the screen, I thought was was just brilliant, yeah, um, and very very effective, and nothing yeah.
1: like the child actor,
0: yeah. No, well, yeah. <laughs> Do you think?
2: I I wonder if it's worth now. Um, given that I think at least one of them has passed away if not both hmm. I wonder if the film should be changed to include that that heads up that this film contains images of, of people who have now passed that is an that interesting in some point some Aboriginal cultures yeah um, that's that's it's quite a taboo yeah I've, for sure um, I yeah. mean I,
0: well um, it may depend on how old the copy of the DVD is that yeah, we got it may be one that's that was true. released prior yeah. to people passing on mm. Um, I, I think it's definitely a good idea people who are listening to this episode may have noticed at the beginning there was something saying that um advising indigenous and uh, torres strait islanders that it we're going to be discussing things about people who have who have passed on mm. um and i think yes i think if this is if this was on a streaming service if this was on netflix or, or some other equivalent um yeah i think yeah. It, i think it should be added yeah um well, definitely just a thought The director, Philip Noyce, reflected upon the experience of directing his three untrained leads as being, quote, one hell of a learning curve, end quote. (laughs) Uh, His technique was to not over-direct them, explaining that often some of the best things were achieved without telling them anything at all, and that they just do what you hope for. Um, We cast them because we believed that they were naturals, and he applauded the dedication and determination of the three girls, um, and basically said the film hung entirely on their performances, and and they nailed it they yeah. really did yeah. yeah three very distinct personalities as well mm. um and just 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 brilliant at no point we used was at least i didn't find i was sitting there going oh child actors you know which which you know i i sometimes get even though i love matilda i am occasionally <laughs> there going oh yeah that's Ma- that's mara wilson that's not the character yeah um whereas this i i didn't find i didn't find myself losing that engagement at all. Just on the subject
1: of the director, Philip Noyce, I thought a couple of times, I could be wrong, I thought he was actually just cheekily paying a little bit of homage to some earlier Australian films. Like there's that scene where the girls are um, at the Moor River Settlement, but they're sitting sort of in some reeds or in some bush. Mm. Um, and um, the yeah, being in those, sh- those smocks, mm. I thought it rang... Um, it's fairly reminiscent of Picnic at Hanging Rock. I could oh, be yeah. wrong. Okay. I could yeah. be wrong. That's
0: interesting because we, we did that film uh, last year uh, in our Australian uh, Film Month and it didn't occur to me watching this. Um, but now that you've said it... Yeah, all
1: it, it needed yeah. was a yeah. few
0: pan pipes and
1: true. who knows. Yeah, someone
2: screaming Miranda for 10 minutes straight. Bingo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: But um, I could be wrong, but I thought... Well, yeah, maybe, maybe... Because yeah. It, it is a beautifully photographed film and it uh, yeah, just, just occurred to me. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, speaking of said rabbit-proof fence, because um, you know, it's an important part of the film, uh, just for those of you that don't know, uh, of all the plagues introduced into Australia, not including white people, uh, <laughs> the rabbit was by far the most devastating and destructive. Uh, following a royal commission that was held in 1901, the Australian government decided to build a barrier fence from a point on the south coast to a point on the north coast. Now, Australia is big. Uh, in case you've not seen it on a map, go and have a look. It's 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 big, and they basically just went. Let's just build a fence. Let's
2: just head on down to Bunnings, you yeah. know. Just parts oh.
0: of which are still still uh, there. present to this yeah. day. I should hope so. I don't want them going back out and doing it again. Mm. It's it would have been a nightmare. Um, this fence that they first built became uh, known as the number one rabbit-proof fence. When it was completed in 1907, it was the longest unbroken line of fence in the world uh this was essentially an endeavor to try and stop rabbits uh getting onto farmland and eating everything so uh that is the the history of of the fence um so by the time that the events of the film took place the fence was about 25 years old it mm. was very much now part of of the land it was very much part of the um i mean the, the way the way that once neville worked out that the girls were using the fence and like mm. sending mm. officers to to use it as this to try and catch them. I thought the way they actually incorporate the fence into the film was, was really good. It yeah. was a really effective way of doing it. And it's such a clever plan from Molly as well, to, to, to just follow the fence. <laughs> yeah, landmarks. Yeah. Landmarks, man. Yeah, because yeah, Australia... Not, not, not to be critical of Australia, not a huge amount of landmarks. <laughs> it's, it's very flat and very samey in lots of bits. Um, the world premiere of this movie was held at an outdoor screening at Jigalong, the outback community uh, where the girls were taken and where their families still live.
2: Nice. Mm.
0: That's a nice touch. Yeah, that is a very nice touch. Um, the drama coach Rachel Mazza is who we have to thank for the uh, three girls' um, performances in terms of um, their understanding of the story. Um, she was basically in charge of, uh, kind of a bit like a minder, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she'd go and she'd explain what the what was happening in the story at that point. Uh, a quote from her said. Um, I don't think there's an Aboriginal person in this country who doesn't understand this story, if not them personally, their parents, or their very immediate family. It's something that we all share, so this was the one thing that I didn't have to teach them, Um, Mm. which I I think is a really... Again, a really powerful quote. You know, it's... Yeah, yeah. yeah, this is a really important film. And that's the other challenge,
1: I suppose, too, with non-actors, is you're filming this stuff out of sequence,
0: so it's trying to explain where we are in the story mm. as well. Mm. Um what followed the oh sorry I'll start that again. <clears throat> uh the screenwriter uh, Christine Olsen and the author of the book Doris Pilkington Gary Mara um were sort of in conversation for uh, quite a while getting this this screenplay written so uh, Doris wasn't overly keen on it being given to the to the wrong people essentially because it's an important story it's obviously massively personal to her. And in the end, uh, Christine was the person who convinced her that, that she was the right person to write this story. Uh, so it took about five years of research and writing. Uh, Olsen explained that um, she she actually went to Jigalong in, in WA, and that was the most important part of the research for her story. Uh, jigalong was a depot on the rabbit-proof fence, and the girl's father had actually worked on the fence, which I thought was, again... Um, it it was something that was only mentioned briefly but it, mm. again it's that i thought that having that family connection even though it was f- for an uh, an absent father figure i thought was quite interesting um that the, the yeah. defence... that's something actually yeah. that i picked up on early and thought
1: isn't this interesting that they have this white australia policy which is breed out the native in these half castes but you've created the half castes in the first place because mm. your local you know Jackaroos or, or, or whatever the case may mm. be, fence workers, um, store owners, whatever couldn't keep
0: their bloody pants on in <laughs> the first place. And, and we we even saw that in the film with the 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 farmer that discovers them in the um, Mavis the maids. Um, so propagating oh. the sin. Yeah,
2: yeah, I, I do like that line. Or you know, if Mister Neville wants a half caste child, he can go make his own. Make you his know. Own.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was that was a fantastic yeah. line actually. Um, but uh. Olsen actually then lived with um, Molly Craig herself in uh, Jigalong for three weeks oh, okay. uh, and then when that was sort of the thing that really sort of kick-started the screenplay and got it to the state where it was um but yeah you know spending three weeks with the person you write in the film about I think is a, is a big help and I think sort of helps bring as much of that of that truth to it as possible the director though philip noyce it took him ages to read it so christine had sent it to him going you're the right person for it he was busy uh, working on the bone collector uh, at the time oh, and I, uh had yeah, I a, that. <laughs> yeah he had a lot on his mind um so by the stage by the time he got round to reading the screenplay everyone else in his mm-hmm. office had already read it and said kill it read it <laughs> they were like this is perfect and so it took him about two months he eventually open the screenplay to see what the fuss was about, and he said when he did, he couldn't put it down. Um, but I just really like that idea that he's just fussing around and everyone in his office going,
1: Philip! <laughs> I think um, a lot of his Hollywood experience probably played into this film and the way that it reads in that Philip Noyce sort of became known as, you know, the, the, the guy that you went to for your action thrillers. So that requires a lot of efficiency mm. in terms of the the cuts and the flow of the story. And I think um, I think that, that that fed through to this. I mean, obviously, this isn't an action film, um, but I thought that it was, in in terms of the story put on screen, done very uh, efficiently. Mm. There wasn't mm. padding, there wasn't mess there. Yeah. We, we got to the story, the story's told. And this is the outcome. And um, I, I think that it was probably helped enormously by the, the, the time that he had spent probably cutting together mm. a lot of very fast-paced films. Indeed. And there
2: are a lot of tense moments in it. You know, it's certainly not a thriller by any means, but there is like a lot of tension that I think uh, mm. having a thriller director... Uh, director you know certainly helped you know augment those moments like when the kids are hiding mm. you know there's a lot of hiding scenes and every time you're just kind of like mm. the oh shot my God, this is know. the moment yeah, gonna, yeah. Yeah. the shot
0: of Gracie at the train station when oh, you just yeah, see the car yeah. suddenly appear but Bingo. it's it, but it's silent yeah. Um, it's yeah it's it's he he did a fantastic job um, on it and i think bringing those sensibilities was was a big um, was a big part of it um did you ever see a short film from 1977, called Backroads by any chance, Murray? No. It's one of Noyce's earlier works. That's the film uh, which was the reason why the screenwriter, Christine Olsen wanted Noyce to do it uh, because she described it as full of exuberance and energy. He treated the Aboriginal people in the film as people, nothing more and nothing less. And she felt that, you know, this was somebody that was doing this in the 70s when, of course, you know, at 1977 they'd been human beings for 10 mm. years, according to the Australian <laughs> government. You know, it's one of those things where she felt that this was somebody who she could implicitly trust. And then, of course, he's gone on and done his stuff in Hollywood. He was essentially almost like the perfect storm of a person to do it. Um, and but, yeah, yeah. And, and the 70s were,
1: to a certain degree, a fairly uh, untidy time for Australian filmmaking in terms of quality mm. coming out. I mean, you had Peter Weir did Picnic and yeah, Hanging Mark. Rock. And. There wasn't a great deal. <laughs> there was uh, it was a lot of um, films I admire, mm-hmm. a lot of exploitation, yeah. which I love to death. But there, there was in the, terms of yeah. quality, there um, was the
0: first Mad Max, which uh, yeah is but once is, again is a it's, film. it's it's, you <laughs> it's know, a film.
1: It's it's not a you know
0: a, a bold drama so no, much as no yeah. not particularly. Um, the there was a problem though. Uh, one of the original actors that they cast as the three lead girls ended up not being in the film. Um, her name was. Caitlin Lawford, uh, she was seven years old from Fitzroy Crossing, and found that being in the city and working in the film environment was just too difficult for her, mm. and ended up leaving um, four days before they started shooting.
2: Was she related to the actress who played the mother or the actress who played the grandmother? Because they, they were Lawfords as well, quite possibly. They? I don't know; it might be I, a common I, I, surname, but... I
0: don't know. But all yeah. I know is that um, Tiana um, Sansbury replaced her, um, oh, okay. and so she was. Daisy I believe the youngest one yeah, yeah. Um, and she was originally cast as one of the girls in the Moor River uh, bedroom group oh, okay. and they were yeah. like actually no we really like you you can come yeah. in and, and yeah. do this um, I the more River college girls I thought were great like just yeah. th- that scene where I, this film does a really good job of showing the passage of time because it is over quite a long period of time but having them reading um, the the interview with Mister Neville in the newspaper, mm. and laughing at the fact that they'd left a dead rabbit and things like that. Yeah. I thought they were great, but it was also a clever way of integrating. Oh, months passed, when in obviously film time it's been fifteen minutes. It's yeah. I thought I thought, but I thought there's more river sequences were very, very well shot, particularly with with the such a group of uh, such a young group of actors. Mm. Um, they were great. Yeah. I, I
1: think um, in in terms of what you've
0: you've said there, I find that. Um,
1: I find that interesting, Stephen, because this seems to be something that's recurrent that, I've, you know, that, that I hear time and again, and that's about the pull of home for Indigenous people. And I know you're not a big AFL f- uh, fan, Stephen, I but the number of the times that you yeah. read that... I mean, the most high-profile high one last year was... Um, uh, God, his name escapes me. Um, Rioli from Hawthorne. Oh, retired. Terrible. Yeah, so. um, pretty much prematurely because the pull of home was so great, and I think that's a really important thing to understand. Is that's part of their culture. Part of their culture is they their love of where they were uh, brought up, their love of home, and um,
2: just how much is tied to their yeah, identity as absolutely. well. Absolutely. So know. it
1: doesn't surprise me in the slightest that <laughs> she, yeah. And, and we talked about earlier the 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 other one uh <laughs> running away twice to yeah, go back to, go to go Broome. Home.
0: Yeah. Um yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe noise could have done a little bit more homework on that like mm. guys possibly but al- yeah. although uh, to to finish with um it actually this final point actually ties in um considerations had to be made uh to respect the Australian indigenous uh culture specifically um Rachel Mazza, the drama coach, um explained that permission needed to be sought from tribal elders to tell a Western Australian story in South Australia because it was mostly oh, yeah. shot in the Flinders range uh, Ranges section of South Australia. And also that they were going to be speaking uh, the dialect, the mm. Western Australian dialect mm. in their land. Uh, Mazza explained this story is a black story, and Philip. Uh, the director, is a white fella. There's a certain protocol, and much to his credit, he asked the right people, how do I go about doing this properly? And I think that really sums up this film. This entire film feels as though there are people at the helm going, how do we do this properly? And I don't think there's a misstep, particularly... I I say, as a white European who's emigrated to this country and watching it, I I look at it, I think, the way that you've got Kenneth Branagh playing a character who is, you know, a, a monster... But doesn't realize that they are a monster. Doesn't believe themselves to be doing anything wrong. You know, they're the chief protector. They're the, they're the person that's in charge of these people. That you know, they can't help the fact they they don't and know it's what a role to, that they he, don't know what he takes seriously yeah. in the film. That comes across. But I think very, I yeah. think the fact that you have that happening, I think the way that the all the actors are, are treated, but specifically the way they treated the young actors, the way things are shot, um, I, I just think this is a remarkable film. I I Mm. really, I'm really, the more I think about it, it, as we've been discussing it, I am really impressed with this film. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, All that remains is to score the film. Mm. Uh, So, uh, we, obviously, we score it out of 10. We understand that, uh, you know, numbers are subjective, but, you know, we're going to do it anyway. It's good fun. Uh, Murray, this was your first time watching Rabbit Proof Fence. What Mm. would you give it out of 10?
1: Wow. That's That's a very good question, Stephen. Um... I'm going to rate this in terms of, um, hundreds of kilometers. Okay. Walked. Fair. And I'm going to rate this, uh, 900 out of a thousand kilometers. I thought it was, um, it was pretty much up there. There was very little that I could put my finger on that I could fault. I thought they told a, a, a an important story beautifully. I thought the, uh, performances were, um, fantastic. I thought it was shot phenomenally, um, and it's, it's a film I should have caught up
0: with earlier. Mm. Mm. Carmen, what about you?
2: Um, yeah, I'm kind of going to go for the same. I'll go for nine uh, socks to cover your shoe tracks out of ten.
0: That yes. was so good. <laughs> oh, I wish I'd thought of that. But, you see, the river yeah. trick, I was like, okay, that makes sense. Leave the bag, walk for the river. We've seen that in a few different films. But the socks and rocks, socks-rocks mm. combo was just that's, brilliant. That's
2: classic Bear Grylls yeah. you know, kind of yeah, uh, well,
0: thing. I I like to think this is where Bear learned it from. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, fair yeah, point. Fair it was point, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm going to make it a, a trifactor of nines. Uh, I think I think this is a really brilliant film. I think um. I, I think you know if if you've never been exposed to, to Australian culture in general, but even specifically uh, Indigenous culture, I think this is this is an important film to sort of understand why we are where we are at now. Um, so I would say definitely go watch it. I would give it nine hot sweet teas out of ten. Uh, and I could go for a hot sweet tea now. So uh, all that remains for me to say is uh, thank you, Murray and Carmen, for joining me on this episode. Thank you, my Steven. pleasure. Thanks, Stephen. And for those of you listening at home, this brings to an end Australia Month. Boo! Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, well, you know, New Zealanders aside, we hope that you enjoyed uh, this month of films. Our regular scheduled. Uh, no, I think it should be more. More Australian films? More Australian films, Stephen. No. No, (laughs) There's a potpourri of Australian films that are great. Okay. Maybe Hercules Returns, if you're all good. (laughs) Uh, But yes, uh, we are going back to our regularly scheduled programming of kind of a bit of everything and everything. Um, So... Uh, make sure that you subscribe to the feed. Uh, Just search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club on iTunes or SoundCloud or any other podcasting or podcatching service to get a fresh episode each and every week. Uh, We're also available on Facebook. If you want to uh, leave comments, suggest what films we watch, uh, vote in polls, that sort of thing, uh, just go to Facebook and search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club. And if you want to be a member and uh, you want to get to suggest films for the polls, uh, like um, one of our most recent... um, uh, collaborators to the to the Patreon did. Uh all you have to do is go to patreon.com forward slash CCUC podcast and uh, yeah you can become a member and get some bonus material. But that's all for this week, so until next time Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye